Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek out a qualified medical professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Oshta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Katrina Mitchell, MD, IBCLC, PHMC, FACS, is a board-certified surgeon, fellowship-trained breast surgical oncologist, and international board-certified lactation consultant whose practice includes the surgery of women with breast cancer and benign breast disease. She treats maternal complications of lactation and has a special interest in pregnancy-associated and postpartum breast cancer. She is a certificate in perinatal mental health and cares for women impacted by perinatal mood disorders. Dr. Mitchell lectures locally, nationally, and internationally on the intersection of lactation and surgery and has authored book chapters, clinical care protocols, and journal articles on the topic. She is the creator of PhysicianGuideToBreastfeeding.org, an evidence-based resource for breastfeeding families and the communities that support them. Dr. Mitchell resides in Santa Barbara, California and practices at the Ridley Tree Cancer Center at Sensum Clinic. She enjoys reading, traveling, and spending time with her son at the beach. She can be reached at physicianguidetobreastfeeding.org. Welcome, Dr. Mitchell. The first question I would ask you is what's different about being a breast surgeon and an IBCLC and how does that give you like a different outlook? Yeah, I think it's very helpful because I think I'm always, you know, we operate on the breast, we do a lot of breast physiology and anatomy. So I think I'm often looking at the breast in a, just a completely different way than people that are maybe pediatrics background. And so they're always looking at the baby, but you may not even have mom in, a, in you know, a gown in the exam room where that's just how we, we train in breast surgery. Everyone has an exam. We're looking at every single person's breast and nipples and every aspect of it. And yeah, I think just also having the understanding of breast anatomy and just what the breast looks like internally. It's why, you know, I say it would never occur to me ever to massage a breast because it would just cause so much damage. But I think if you haven't seen the inside of the breast, you sort of imagine it's more like a tube of toothpaste and you can just squeeze things out. Right. Yeah. That's definitely, I would say from the I've listened to some of your lectures. Mm -hmm. One of them I think was on Ilka. And one of the biggest things that I remember was just the description of how massage and all of the really, really aggressive massage that people will do both women and providers with mastitis and plug decks and how much damage that causes. Yep. Yes, exactly. And so if you are traveling around in an RV too, that I have my highway analogy that if you're having all these overpasses and underpasses and feeder lanes and traffic, and it's all interconnected and not discreet. And all you do is crumple the freeway. It's like an earthquake on the freeway. And, you know, you add more cars from pumping and then the traffic's backed up even worse. So, so what yeah. do you tell someone when they have plug ducts or mastitis and they want to get out because they can feel a lump and they feel like they're like, it's right there. If I just get that piece out. Exactly. So what people think, what people think are plugs or what they think they're feeling is just engorged breast tissue. So it's just locally distended alveolar cells and, you know, all of the surrounding connective tissue in the breast. So people, when people say, oh, but I nurse and the plug, like quote unquote plug comes out, 
It's just that they decrease the distension of the alveolar cells in that area. And it wasn't a discrete plug. It's impossible to have a discrete plug. It's literally just, I describe the ducts to people as a cobweb because that's exactly what it is. It's not discrete at all. And so that's part of it that it's not actually pathological what they're feeling, but then it becomes pathology when you continue to empty and empty and empty, you continue to feed off that breast and then it gets it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It just becomes, those cells become more and more overactive, more and more distended. You have to nurse more and more to get it to go away. And then eventually it just becomes more red from massage, increased blood flow, you know, decreased lymphatic drainage. So yeah, it's funny you use the freeway analogy because I'll tell people with the plug, I'm like, it's really just, you've got a lot there, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're seeing a traffic jam, but you can't go and, and take that spot out. Exactly. It's not like that. You can't just pull that one little yep. piece out. Yeah. And I think too, when people say, oh, but you know, some women really have to pay attention to their breasts and they have to work out these little like blebs or stones or or shards, like they get called all kinds of different Mm -hmm. things. And it's just ductal inflammation. But if you have to, people don't understand the orifices are microscopic. So if you are really having to do that, there's a problem, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. It's just going to cause more of that inflammation. Yes. Yeah. I actually had a client this week that um, called me. It was an initial appointment, baby's three months old. And she said, you know, she's had a blood for about three months. But she said, I finally got rid of it this week. I used a needle and I pulled it out. And she's like, I know I shouldn't have, but I did. But she's like, the weird thing was it came back within 12 hours. And I'm like, exactly. Yes. Because it's just, it's just a surface phenomenon representing what's going on in that entire ductal system. So yeah, you can get it out. And another one is right there behind it. Cause it's all along all those interlacing ducts. So we're having problems, not at the surface, mm-hmm. but inside. It's just telling us what's going on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very complicated system. Yeah. I mean, when you look at drawings and diagrams of the breast tissue, it's, yeah. it's a lot more complicated. I think people either think of it as like a sack uh-huh. holding milk. Yeah. Right. Like you said, that tube of toothpaste, you just squeeze it and out comes the yeah. milk or a muscle. Yeah. Right. And they're like, okay, it's kind of like a bicep and you just get in there and yeah. do some muscle deep tissue massage and yeah. it'll be all better. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not either of those. Yeah. Yeah a very unique system. Yeah. And even still like any other gland, like the pancreas that produces pancreatic enzymes, you're never going to massage that to get out, you know, like some obstruction in, in the pancreas or, you know, the it's, it's part of the gland and it's not the actual discrete. Yeah. You're just going to cause damage to any gland in the body that you would massage. So, yeah. So that kind of answers my next question, but you might have something else. Yeah. What, what do you wish that women knew about their breasts? I wish they would know that everything is actually a lot more simple than the lactation world makes it out to be. And the vast majority of the time, all I'm doing is completely simplifying things. And people have just been put down, you know, like conflicting advice and all these different rabbit holes and everything becomes, and all you do is wipe the slate clean and you say, let's going to do these couple of simple things. All this other stuff is too much going on. So I think that's it. Like it's also just reminding women that their breasts, it's not pathology. There's no pathology going on with their baby. It is just, we have created pathology and 
and it, and it just, it cascades from there. So I think trusting themselves is a big part of it. And then also just to be gentle with their breasts and, and not, not massage, not soak breasts in Epsom salt, not, you know, do castor oil wraps. And I think that the funniest thing I've had a patient say in the past, it was a couple months ago, who was told to do castor oil on her breasts with a wrap and then put a heating pad and then massage and then pump and then, then soak her breasts in Epsom salt and then massage and then pump. And it was this continual. And she said, my kitchen looked like a breaking bad episode. So I always say, if you are doing something that does not seem reasonable or seem silly, or if someone walked in on you and you were doing this and you would feel silly, you shouldn't be doing it because it's not, lactation is not supposed to be like that. We have created that ourselves. It's supposed to be a fairly simple system. And I do exactly. remind moms that in my job, you know, in private practice lactation, especially I'm seeing people who really looked for me, yeah. right. I'm not seeing everyone because I'm not impatient anymore. Right. So I am seeing those who are having trouble. Yeah. Um, but I try to remind them that most of the time this goes well and easy. Yeah. It doesn't always. And yeah. it's the same reason we have OBs and not all just midwives right. because sometimes we need more care, but yeah. we have to remember that at the base of it, yeah. you know, our bodies usually do know what to do. Yeah. And you just need to take. Yeah. And I think it's just so when things aren't going as well, it's still just creating a plan that is realistic. And I always say it's a marathon and not a sprint. And it's just like doing things that are reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, actually another documentary and lecture I watched on Ilka's website it was called we are mammals and it's by an IBCL. Oh, yeah. Have you seen that one? I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. She's a, she's in Vancouver yeah. and she's, I believe Iranian. I might be incorrect yeah. there, but she oh, was yeah. talking yeah. about the difference in her native country. Yeah. And then when she moved to Vancouver, BC and how it was like, no women knew how to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. And she was astounded at the percentage of issues and complications and everything else. And she said, you know, you just, we need to remind people that this is what humans do. Right. Right. And we need to stop all of the like insane stuff. Yeah. Right. Like, like you're saying, we're creating the pathology. We're telling them you need to buy, you know, all these right. breastfeeding pillows and nipple shields and tubes and, yes. and all this accoutrement to be able to breastfeed. Yeah. And really you just need boobs. Yeah. And baby. Yeah. Like it's actually a very simple process. Right. Right. I think another issue is that it's just, um, most of the time when there's something that has just gotten, you know, just completely overwhelming, there can be a lot of mental health background going, you know, in the background that moms really, we need to stop, you know, recognize that what is happening with lactation that feels like if you have a story that you can't make heads or tails of, and it's just all over the place and things have just, and everything is just like a, this muddle of, you know, is kind of simplifying and saying, okay, is this just anxiety or depression that's being expressed through lactation? Because it's not, we don't have, you know, kids that are competing to, you know, read or they're not potty training or, you know, all the things that go on as kids get older, but this is really, you know, this is your first sort of challenge as a parent that to like, you know, feed your baby and, and, you know, get the baby pooping and growing. And so I think a lot of times two people need to take a step back. And if something seems like it's, you know, a lot going on to just reassess where mom is at a baseline and just get the lactation part of it out of the picture. Cause we as professionals can feed into more anxiety and more depression by not recognizing that the mom just needing help herself for her mental health. Absolutely. I mean, I see all women struggling with feeding their child and sometimes it's minor and sometimes it's really not, but mental health is huge. I am 
frequently referring to whether it's a provider or a warm line or something. And sometimes having a conversation of what is best for you right now, what mm-hmm. is what is best for your mental health, that breastfeeding is wonderful. And I'm obviously supportive of it, but what's most important is that we have a healthy mom and a healthy baby. And sometimes that isn't the right course. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when you have moms that are, you know, they've been instructed to triple feed and they're just absolutely losing their mind. And it's the first thing I do is have people stop triple feeding if they've been sent home from the hospital doing it because it's exhausting. It's demoralizing. Mm-hmm. It is not sustainable in any kind of way. I think also too, when people are given a nipple, shield and then they're sent home with the nipple shield and feeding a baby with a syringe the nipple shield is an artificial nipple you know you may as well just give the baby the bottle and figure out what's going on with mom's breast because all you're doing is you know having a baby latch on the end of this pacifier i.e the nipple shield and just suck passively at the breast and then mom's breasts aren't getting stimulated babies burning calories and not transferring milk and then they're replacing it with this exhausting syringe feeding so Yeah, I think exactly. You always have to take every situation individually and just say, okay, number one priority always much more so than lactation is mental health because you can, you can treat lactation, but if mom's mental health is not in a good place, lactation isn't going to continue anyway. Right. So you need to treat that. And I've had so many instances of, I mean, patients that are in, you know, say recovery from alcohol abuse and they've maintained their sobriety, but then, you know, they've had all this sleep deprivation postpartum and they're starting to sundown. And, you know, and I've had, I've said, okay, look right now, it just doesn't matter where you can get donor milk. You can pump before bed, you can get formula, but I need you to get sleep tonight. You have to have a full night's sleep. We're going to put dad on duty or partner on duty for this night. And it's amazing how, when you treat the mental health part of it, and you know, you have them come back. I had a patient like that, that, you know, had her come back for follow-up and I was expecting, okay, we're going to talk about, you know, but everything was better. Once we put her back on the medication, she had been on the past once she got some sleep and then suddenly lactation, I did nothing to address lactation and spent the whole visit with mental health and everything was fine with lactation. It just fixed itself. Yeah. Sleep is enormous. Yeah. For and so many an people. Enormous part of mental health. Yes. Too, when you're not sleeping. And I God, I feel for new parents now. I mean, I feel like the COVID has added a new humongous light yes. layer of anxiety. And they were already, we already have parents way too stressed in this mm-hmm. country. And there's so much pressure to do the right thing. And yeah. to, you know, there's so much that I hear from clients of, well, you have to have the right, you know, there's the right stuff that's gonna make your baby happy. Right. And then there's getting, you know doing everything right, putting your baby in the right classes and all that. And it's like so much constant pressure. It's no wonder that it's like every lactation visit, somebody's crying. Yep. Yep. You know, it's it's a lot of pressure put on them. Yep. And I think with lactation visits too, we're kind of picking up the fourth trimester care that's missing. And, you know, that, so we are maybe the only healthcare contacts that people are having outside of, you know, OB checks, a C-section incision, or yeah, I always yeah, have patients say, okay, great. So like six weeks, I was cleared for sex and cleared for exercise. The two things I was not interested in doing at all. And there's really not a lot else there in our healthcare system right. for moms because otherwise they're going to the pediatrician for weight checks. And then, you know, people, we know statistically moms are less likely to open up to pediatricians because they don't want to seem like a bad mom, especially if they're having scarier intrusive thoughts. And many are afraid the baby's going to be taken away from them and they would look like they're focusing on themselves instead of the baby. So all of these things are barriers, but it's lactation that we can be the people that are supporting mom with our otherwise, you know, not really 
present fourth trimester care in most communities. I mean, it's changing and improving and that's great, but I think we have a long ways to go. So I think the first thing that, yeah, lactation providers can just say, okay, knowing you are probably, if a person is already seeking help, there's already struggles. And so your baseline the threshold for, you know, worrying about mental health stuff is, is going to be higher. Like, you know, you're going to just be looking for that much more in a patient's presenting your office to begin with. Absolutely. And I think we're also in a unique spot in lactation because we're treating a dyad and that isn't really the OB is treating mom and not looking at baby and the pediatrician is only looking at baby and not looking at mom. And nobody is holding the two together. And at that time, they're really one, Yeah. right? Baby's dependent on mom and mom is dependent on baby in this, in this cohesiveness that if that immediate postpartum period, that fourth trimester, they're not two separate people. You can't really dissect and same with lactation. You can't, I can't look at it and say, okay, this is just on mom's side or just on babies. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's how they're coming together. Yeah. 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 I think also lactation, we often have more time, you know, that we're not primary care doctors that have a template and, you know, they're more restricted and they have to get through, you know, a panel. And I think that's why I would say, I do have the luxury of being a specialist and having, you know, I mean, obviously healthcare is changing all the time. And I, this could change, but right now I have the ability to say, okay, I want, you know, this in my schedule at this time and this time, and we're going to book this person for, you know, twins are getting extra time and, you know, this person is going to be quick and this person's going to be a longer follow-up, but you don't have that flexibility, unfortunately, in primary care a lot of the time. So I think if we can just be the people that are listening and then spending time seeing what may be below the surface. Oh yeah. I feel like a lot of, a lot of the lactation is kind of holding and that referral stuff. I mean, I've been sending a lot back to their OBs recently to get PT referrals for pelvic issues, right? Right. Right. Pelvic floor. And one of them had a separated pubic synthesis and, you know, encouraging them because they're like, well, I'm going to go in in three weeks for a six week check. I could just wait. I'm like, you're in so much pain. You can't sit. Right. You need to call the OB. And it's, it's seeing those things that you're right. They're just not seen. We do not have enough care in the fourth trimester. No one's touching those patients, but lactation. Right. Because even the newborn with the pediatrician, frequently they'll go in, you know, right around day four and then two weeks and usually two months. Mm-hmm. And like so that's much a happens very between. long time, yep. especially if they were just doing okay, mm-hmm. you know, and even the two to four months, I saw someone recently who uh-huh. she said at her, at the two month, the baby was just gaining half an ounce a day. Uh-huh. And she had a home scale and we all know those aren't that accurate, right. but exactly. for doing some trend weights. And I said, you've weighed him a couple of times the last two weeks, where are we at? And she's like, well, he's gained four ounces in the last four weeks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is, right. These are these are problems because they don't have follow up. Right. Right. Exactly. And they don't want to bother the pediatrician because she's like, we have another appointment in a month. Right. It'll be fine. A month's a really long time, time. for yeah. two month old. Yeah, that's what I always say. There's, you know, there's a, just a different threshold for getting people to therapy and starting medication and, you know, and weights and milk production and every minute counts and it's just different. And yeah. well, I think the fear I hear from clients too is I don't want to go to a weight check because they're just going to tell me to give them a bottle of formula. Yes. And exactly. I'm already working so hard and trying to get right. this working. And I'm like, I understand that. Yeah. And we're going to work on that. Yeah but we also need to get a baby fed. Right. Yeah. And I, and that comes into a lot of, I think the intrusive thoughts and the trauma and people feel like, oh my gosh, someone must be judging me that my baby isn't game and they avoid or 
And I think that's partially also the fault of our healthcare system where people are so rushed and, you know, in and out and all they, you know, they just need that's, you know, pediatricians that may not have a lot of education on lactation and all they want is, you know, the baby to be gaining weight and they don't really care necessarily how it happens if they're not trained in lactation. And so then moms avoid for, you know, and it becomes this cycle of things that need to. Yeah kind of be worked on. So I see you have a nice lactation room here, yeah. but I know you also do telehealth. Mm-hmm. How does that differ? And how is your, you know, how is your yeah. care different with telehealth? Yeah. We've all done so much more telehealth ever since yeah. COVID started. I mean, yeah, yeah. We did it before, but now it's big time. Yeah. I'd say it's just a backup. It's for people that are out of, you know, this area. I'm still licensed in, you know, several states from my training and fellowship training, my last practice. So it's more a, I think it's also akin to like people accessing mental health care, how we're trying to make that, you know, the California legislature is trying to make that more open. So it's, it's things like that, that maybe don't need, don't need an in-person visit, but they need someone who understands perinatal mental health and has easier access than psychiatrists that are booked out, you know, a year but really, if I ever had a, a choice, I would rather not see anyone with telehealth, to be honest. I just think you, you just, um, there's so much by like, and it's probably because I'm a surgeon, but like seeing and touching and just everything, the symmetry of things and just a lot of it's really tactile for me. So yeah, I mean, I think it, again, it, it especially um, with supporting moms that have a breast cancer diagnosis and other places that has been, I think the biggest benefit of telemedicine that you can provide things that, you know, I'm not the person that's operating on them. I'm not the person that's, you know, doing any the chemotherapy or cancer care, but I can provide, you know, validated guidance for them navigating lactation in their diagnosis that their local physicians may not be familiar with. So, right. Because not everyone has an MD IBCLC in their area or even state. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, there's, from what I have found, there's not a a lot of you. Mm, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Maybe because I know the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, do we have like seven or 800 members maybe, but yeah, not all of them are IBCLC. So I don't know Would the, maybe, I don't know if the, IBLC, yeah, would be able to give you that number. You know, I've looked at it, but it it didn't have, at least I didn't see a spot for MD specific separate from IBCLCs, but I just, there's not, you know, there's a lot of areas that don't. And I'm thrilled that Rachel Yang is now up in the Bay Area, but there was nobody up in the Bay Area really who was, you know, very knowledgeable about lactation. And and when you get into the complicated, you know, like recurrent mastitis Mm -hmm. and, you know, recurrent issues like that, where we're really going past the scope of a, of an IBCLC, even a knowledgeable IBCLC. But mm-hmm. when we're dealing with someone and we've done all the, all the basics, of course, initially, but then all the other stuff we could do when we've, you know, managed the mastitis you know, gently and, and therapeutically, but still recurring, that's yeah. when they really seem to need, yeah. need specialty care. And there's just not a lot. Yeah. And like, I, and you're right. I mean, tele, telemedicine can help with, with that kind of stuff too, but really I think always having people together in person is helpful. It can be very helpful, right? Because you can see things. I mean, the one thing that I I like about telehealth is sometimes I'll see things in their home that I wouldn't see in an office. You know, I might see 
something like a snoo or some bottle yeah. set up and they have told me they weren't doing bottles. Right. Yeah. And so it'll help bridge conversation. Yeah. So sometimes I'll see things and I'll, I'll ask them about it, you know, tell me about how that's working for you yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But it is different definitely than being in a room with a person and being yeah. able to put your hands on and assess. Yeah. It's definitely faster. Yeah. Right. I mean, trying to yeah. describe and have someone turn and do yeah. an assessment virtually yeah. is yeah. not nearly as fast yeah. as doing it in person. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is there anything you would say women should know to keep their breasts healthy? I mean, we think about like heart health and we talk about yeah. brain health and we talk about all these other, yeah. you know, body parts about, you know, even your gut health. Yeah. Right. But we don't really talk about breast what, health. In general. Yeah. I mean, in terms of preventing breast cancer, we, you know, want people to maintain a healthy weight and, you know, avoid products and high in animal and saturated fats and, you know, have vitamin D. And so it's basic, you know, healthy weight, avoid excessive alcohol. That's all in terms of cancer risk. Um, but otherwise there's not anything in particular that you need to do for just your, the physiologic function of your breast. Um, if you're not breastfeeding, um, wear a good bra, but really it's not, I don't think it's that complicated. And then with with lactation, I mean, that's when it's important just to treat your breast well, wear a good bra, don't do complicated stuff, use ice when you're having pain, simple in that sense too. I don't think there's one thing I'd recommend. What do you mean by a good bra? Like what? Like a supportive a bra. bra, a very supportive bra. And if you have very large breasts and you need an underwear bra, that's fine. You know, there's no mastitis occurs from distended alveolar cells and microbiome disruption and subacute mastitis and dysbiosis and, you know, inflammation in the ducts. It doesn't occur from some external compression unless you are doing something that is just like completely traumatizing the breast, like a you know, massage, but wearing an underwear bra does not cause mastitis in any kind of way. You know, it'd have to be like some underwear that is not at all, you know, and if it's uncomfortable, you're not going to be wearing the bra. But if it was for some reason, like sitting there and then you had a, you know, two babies on top of you with a seat, you know, it, it would have to be some really extensive trauma, not just um, underwear that's like slightly misplaced. No, but more like a insanely tight bra that you're pumping through and it's leaving indentations in your breast and it's that wouldn't even I mean that would cause that would cause pain it would cause pain, indentation and you could you know you could ice it the same way as if you like something with another body part but the but people need supportive bras otherwise they end up with breast pain back pain dependent lymphedema you know just fluid collection in the breast so it's always going to make someone feel better to have a good bra okay that's always good to know. Yeah. And then there's the other, I mean, especially being from the Bay Area, there's, you know, oh, yeah, no being, right. And Marin yeah. County being the number one, the highest breast cancer yeah. rate in the country. It's like such a hot topic up in the Bay Area. Uh-huh. And there's the discussion of, is it, you know, is it, you'll hear from groups of women that it's the underwire or it's the deodorant yeah. or it's, you know, and it's like, they're trying to find that thing because if we have that thing, then we can fix it. Right. I think it's right. a very common, right. Right. common idea in our culture to find the one thing and also to make it very fixable. We want the pill or the thing to do to fix it. Right. And I mean, I'm sure you probably know with the Marin County, you know, highest breast cancer rates, is it you know, could it be something environmental? Sure. And then we went through our women just getting screened more there because it's more affluent population. Are women having children at 
later ages and delaying childbearing and having fewer children, all the other confounding factors that we know. So I, I don't think, you know, you can try to control for those confounding factors and there's still a higher rate, but I was reading a breast cancer journal yesterday. It's funny. It was, you know, talking about international rates that, you know, our cancer rates are changing as there's more urbanization and play, you know, this was specifically about Bangladesh, but it's just funny having, having lived in Africa for four years. And, you know, you see that the rate is much lower. Well, it's probably lower because there's less urbanization, but there's also less data being collected, like less reliable data. <laughs> so how do you, could there rate, could breast cancer rates actually be the somewhat similar? It right. could be, we're just not capturing the data. Right. Are they getting the same amount of screening? <laughs> They're not. Yeah. Right. Speaking of screening, do you just, is this still follow current like American Cancer Society recommendations for so the, the guidelines, because um, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force changed guidelines where they recommended um, this was probably, Jesus was 2015, I think, that caused a lot of, you know, it was not a good thing for the cancer community because it would cause a lot of confusing recommendations that none of us supported. They recommended women start their mammograms at 50 and every other year. And the task force that created those guidelines did not have any cancer, any kind of cancer physicians. In, so no, no radiologists in breast cancer, no surgeons, no oncologists, anyone that actually works with cancer did not participate in that committee that provided the recommendations. So that's one of the major issues. The second thing is we know with our data that all of the life, the majority of life you're saved with breast cancer as a result of screening is in the 40 to 50 age group, because we're actually capturing the women who are in their postpartum years in that age group. And that is when the most virulent tumors occur. So those are all of the more aggressive postpartum breast cancers. And we want to pick those up early with a screening mammogram rather than someone feeling a mass that has, you know, subsequently moved to lymph nodes and potentially elsewhere in the body. So the American Society of Breast Surgeons, Society of Breast Imagers, American College of Radiology, all recommend screening mammograms beginning at the age of 40 every year. Um, and then earlier, if you have higher risk, if you have a genetic mutation or family members with breast cancer at younger ages, anything that's increasing your risk, but that can be sort of determined with your healthcare provider and using models to predict breast cancer risk. But that's very important. And that's the, when I, I wrote a blog post for the U.S. Lactation Consultant Association for October, talking about the need to continue to screen women during pregnancy and lactation as otherwise recommended as though they weren't pregnant or lactating. Right. And I think it's something that it'd be good for all of us to be on the same page about, because that's one of the hard things in healthcare is when you get so many different answers. Even personally, I'm 43 and I had gone to my physician last year and said, isn't it time for me? I'm 42. I have no family history of any yeah. cancers and I've breastfed for four years, but at some point I should get a mammogram. Yeah. Seems like the thing to do. And I had already delayed it a couple of years because my kids are more the priority yeah. than me. And both the OB and my primary were like, well, you know, the recommendations are like, you don't really need to do it. You could do it, but you don't have to. And I wound up doing one because yeah. I felt like that was a good idea, but it's very confusing mm -hmm. to people out there when the providers aren't all on the same page and that we're not all like we do pap smears. 
every year, mm-hmm. right? For a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. And then you can go every two years and everything yeah. else in monogamous relationships with so many yeah. negative paps. And we have guidelines for all these things. We yeah. screen for prostate cancer at a certain age and mm-hmm. colon cancer. It's like, this is just, but I feel like this one has gotten really muddy in the water. That is true. And you will have family mm-hmm. practice doctors that, and it's not that they are coming up with these recommendations themselves. It's that it's a society level. So family practice doctors tend to follow the, you know, the Academy of Family Practice Physicians. Mm-hmm. And then that that academy follows the, per, the U.S. Preventive Task Force, you, you know, recommendations. But then you have the cancer side of or the internist, you know, people that it just kind of is w- which recommendation you're following. But I would just say it's very clear, very clear that we're having all the life years saved in the 40 to 50 age group with screening. I mean, not all, but the majority. The majority of it. Yeah. And from correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read and learned, breastfeeding decreases our risk of cancer eventually. But in the short term, in the you know five years post breastfeeding, we're actually higher risk, risk right? Yeah. So those are the years you really do, do want to get screening. You do want to have screening, even if it's you know depending upon the age and the risk factor, even if it's something as simple as a breast exam with their annual, right? But they you should they should have mammograms. <laughs> yeah, I I mean it's really can you breast exams? Sure, clinical breast exams, that's great, but we really want things picked up before we can even feel it, and we want to see it on a mammogram. So yeah. And meaning also you can have a postpartum woman in their early thirties, right? They wouldn't be. No, right. So because the, because actually in the sort of crossover protective risk the crossover, like increased risk, and then the decreased risk that crosses over later postpartum, it is. So if you have your first baby after the age of 35, you have an increased risk of breast cancer in general compared to someone that never had a baby or had a baby before the age of 35. But your protection as a result of pregnancy and breastfeeding, we think, you know, all of this data is kind of emerging still may not occur until 20 years after pregnancy. And, but if you have your, your baby before the age of 35, the idea is that you're going to sort of have that potentiation risk decrease by the time you start to develop your higher risk for breast cancer in your forties as a result of just aging. Right. So it's just another sign of how biologically speaking, it wasn't something I followed, but biologically speaking, we're meant to have our kids young, younger stop because young. Yeah, yeah, right. It's not as easy to do that. Right. As it, as it yeah. But fortunately we have the technology of 3D mammograms and it's, you know, picking up breast cancer earlier and that's what we know changes survival. So. Yeah. And it's not, I mean, I think going into it for my first, at least I was like, oh, this sounds scary. Yeah. But it's really not nearly yeah. as bad as people say. I mean, it really wasn't bad at all. No, it's not. So yeah. I know I, I would having like a, to see a cancer that you feel that has moved your lymph nodes is bad. Very bad. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's very treatable. Breast cancer is treatable, but it's just when you talk about pain and, you know, catching something, you know, finding the breast cancer early just changes everything. Absolutely. Early detection changes. Everything. In much all yeah. Else. yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a, a universally accepted thing now, whether or not we universally do early detection yeah. on everything yeah. that's different, but I think yeah. we know that. Early detection is always better. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that even applies to lactation, like early detection of challenges that are, you know, and and not just waiting till that four month visit when the baby has just dropped off completely from a curve, but actually addressing that early, it prevents its preventative health care. Oh, yeah, I would love to see someone as early as possible. I mean, when I have a prenatal client and I will see them and we'll do a, you know, I mean, my prenatals talk generally about my, I'll answer questions and then I'll focus on how to set yourself up for success and what are the warning signs when to, when to really reach out for help. But I'd love to see them a couple of days after they get home, you know, not usually the day they get home because they're just, just... yeah, so much, but the next day, a lot of times is really good or the day after that, but it's, you know, it's just so overwhelming, Mm -hmm. but the sooner we see them, the more options we have. Yeah. Absolutely. When I see someone that's, you know, a month or two months postpartum and they're like, well, the baby isn't gaining or I'm now only pumping 10 mLs every three hours or, you know, it's like, well, there's a lot less to do Yeah, and there's a lot more options in the beginning. So what would you say, what is your biggest challenge professionally? Um, let's see. I mean, probably trying to increase education for physicians, you know, breast surgeons, other physicians, um, you know, trying to make this something that's standard everywhere as part of our education and our knowledge base. And I have a friend from med school who does, um, a lot of, I mean, she, a lot of her entire practice is transgender medicine and, uh, you know, she's provide all this access to care. They used to be in Atlanta, Georgia. So like the whole Southeast and now she's, you know, licensed in multiple, multiple States, but she always says, you know, this should be something that isn't a specialist. This should just be every primary care doctor is familiar with, you know, care for transgender patients and, you know, prescribing hormones and puberty blockers and, it's the same thing for lactation. It really shouldn't be a specialty. It really should just be something everyone has extensive education and comfort with and medical school and residency. And I would say, you know, if men lactated, then we would probably be really far past this. And it wouldn't just be, and I would say the things that we tolerate for, you know, we're doing the survey of the Society of Breast Surgeons right now to kind of identify where we can target education for surgeons. And, you know, the one of the, and we have an open comment section and, you know, a lot of people, because we have a question about where did you gain your knowledge about caring for breastfeeding patients? And, you know, the vast majority of people, it's informal knowledge sharing, my own experience. And I always say, if we tolerated that for cancer care, like, oh, just, you know, I had breast cancer and this is how we treated it. And so this is what I'm going to apply to, you know, my entire clinic of, of patients today. It's just, we would never do that, but yet we think that's fine for lactation or that's what we have. The, that's the best we can get right now. And so it just needs to be a lot more structured and formalized with education. So everyone can walk in a room and not feel overwhelmed by something that they don't know anything about. Yeah. I find it interesting that how much more we know about dairy milk, right? Like mm-hmm. we know quite a lot about lactating cows and right. even goats and their milk, business, right? Yeah. It is big business. Yeah. It's big money. We understand their milk. We understand how it works. We understand yeah. all the property, like so much more. You talk about breast milk and it's like, we barely know anything. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I still hear comments like I had a client recently say they were told by their pediatrician to stop. Don't allow any breastfeeding after a year because your breast milk is basically water. There's no right. calories left. And I'm like, That's where is the science opposite. in that? Yeah. Like, yeah. how how would our body just stop right. creating cal- Like, right. You know, but we just don't have yeah. a good knowledge base in lactation out there. Yeah. And and I think it is very much a gender thing. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it has just not been prioritized. And no. so it's not. It's like all of women's healthcare, right? It's just, it's unfortunate. 
But that, so I'd say that's the biggest challenge is probably just trying to improve education and standardize things. And yeah, definitely. So what do you do? How do you stay current? I know when people listen like to the podcast for, for anyone listening to this one, or I know when I listen to podcasts, one of my favorite things is to hear what that person is doing because then I'm like, okay, that's something I should read that article or that book or course, or just even just general things. Like how do you, how do you stay current? Yeah. I'm in active with the protocol committee of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. So we're constantly reviewing protocols on, you know, updating protocols on, on topics in lactation and authoring them and kind of gathering, like gathering data and applying it to clinical scenarios. And then the, you know, IABLE, the Institute for the Advancement of Lactation, Breastfeeding Lactation Education, that's, you know, a huge source of, you know, Anne English. I work closely with her in terms of developing education um, for other providers. And there, she's doing a lot. And her podcast. Yeah, exactly. Her podcast and the listserv is incredibly helpful, I think, just for sharing clinical questions. And I think it's it's a good resource because I think a lot of, you know, when people are in Facebook groups or, you know, support groups, you know, it ends up becoming a lot about personal experience. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really important that lactation is treated just like anything else with medicine, that it's not about our personal experience. It's about data and it's about taking care of individual patients based on information we know and not just like an N of one, like, oh, this worked with my kid or, you know, and so I think that listserv is very good because it's very much clinical, you know, okay, this is, this is not just me talking about, you know, which bottle my son liked or something. And yeah, I mean, just reading, going to meetings. um, I mean, that's both for my cancer practice and lactation and just being engaged. Yeah, I would say the American breastfeeding medicine protocols are extremely beneficial for lactation consultants. When someone asks on a Facebook group, like, what do I do with this client with mastitis or something? I'm always sending the ABM protocol for because I'm like, and I send it to clients and I'll send it to their OBs. Like it's so nice and clear and it really has good information. And I think you're right. There is too much in lactation that is, you know, this worked for me. This was personal experience, or I've seen this help somebody before. Right. And those protocols give us research and proven efficacy, yeah. you know, and validity to what we're saying. Yeah. We're not just saying this worked for a neighbor. Let's go try, you know, exactly. you know standing on your head and making the mastitis go away. Like we right. actually have some evidence and yeah. some data, which unfortunately brings up the problem though, of there not being a lot of data and research. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that we need to change. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're working on that. And also we're um, doing the overall of the ABM mastitis protocol with authors from all over the world. Um, so that should be coming out in the next couple months. So oh, nice. I'm really excited about that. So yeah, that's probably my most used protocol. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So I think there was some sort of out, you know, stuff that we want to update kind of, you know, like adding things like not massaging and, you know, sort of updated information. So we're excited about that. Yeah. I think highlighting that would be very helpful because both from clients and even from other LCs, I'll definitely hear people say, we'll get in there, work that out. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, yeah. no, no, we don't, we don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's not what we're doing. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to treat a breast very, very gently, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and when I tell them to think about 
massaging your baby and that's how you should touch their breast. They're like, wait, what? Yeah. I'm not going to get anything out that way. I'm yeah. Like, that's not the point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just your, and you're also just your, the point is not to get everything out. It's to not add more cars to the freeway and let all of the distended alveolar cells kick in feedback inhibitor of lactation and decrease their production. Right. But you know, women are also not normally taught hand expression right. and how to, you know, how to, I mean, that's something very typical mm-hmm. education in a lot of parts of the world. Yeah. Especially places where they don't maybe have breast pumps. Exactly. And, you know, reliable electricity or all these types of wonderful inventions that we have here. Right. But we forget about the basic ones. Yeah. You know, when women are not are not taught. And I, I talked to lots of women in the first few weeks of life and I your you know first few weeks postpartum and I'll say, you know, where you taught how to hand express in the hospital, you know, yeah. and they're like, you know, right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot, a lot of physicians feel that way too. And I mean, even from kind of a like healthcare policy perspective, Kimberly Sears, Ayers that wrote the big left, the big letdown. And when she speaks, she's a fantastic speaker. And she always says, you know, we are a pump nation. We think that we have, you know, gained, we're celebrating getting our pumps covered, but what we should really be working toward is getting appropriate leave. And, you know, but we, we sort of buy into this, okay, well, if I just get the best pump, everything's going to be okay. Or, you know, when people are asking prenatally, oh, I was told I have to have the, the right pump. And it's true. People will have that conversation, but I always tell people, oh, I like wish we could be focusing on something different because really you want to, you know, that should be a secondary question. And the main question we are, you know, how are we going to support you postpartum? How are we going to make the most of your time off? You know, what can we do? And let's kind of address that down the road, but people are already anticipating not having enough leave. And that is the number one thing they think they need to have for lactation. I always find it a little concerning when I meet with a client and they have four different breast pumps, Yeah, right? They're trying to find that one that works perfectly. Yeah. I'm like, we don't have that technology. Yeah. It's not there. It never will be. It's you not. You can't ever replicate right. breastfeeding. And that's what I'll, I'll tell a client and I'll, I'll forward the Stanford video on hands-on pumping yeah. and talk about how important hands are and how yeah. important it is that you can't just turn on a pump and totally not pay attention yeah. to it, not do anything and then turn it off in 15 minutes and expect yeah. everything to be perfect. Like yeah. our technology is not there yeah. and it's, it's not a technology thing, right? Like right. this is a basic biology of, of a response too. Yeah. I mean, it's not just the mechanics, right? It's right. a physiologic response a mom has to a baby that you're never going to have with a pump. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I always say the like the Stanford videos and, uh, you know, Jane Morton has like the most soothing voice and, you know, and, and because I think it does make, get mixed up when people say, okay, well, what about like massage with hand expression? I was like, that's not really, it's not massage. It's just stroking. I said, and you're just kind of increasing some blood flow to the breast. It's not the same as getting in there with your fist and massaging out a plug. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about hand expression and really it's about relaxing mom and trying to approximate what it's like having the baby at your breast and right. instead of a mechanical pump. and some tactile stimulation for mom too right i mean i think our bodies take in stimuli differently and yeah. just having the nipple pulled right is probably not that wonderful of a stimuli yeah. Yeah. right so you know having even if it's their own hands or their partner's hands but having someone's hands massaging and expressing yeah. the breast yeah. is a different stimulation yeah. than just a pump yeah yeah so I know there's a lot of things out there for these these moms to learn, but that's a lot. Yeah. I know. I wish, I like what you said, though, if we just take away some of the stuff and some of the 
it's almost like noise, right? And just get down to the basics. Yeah. It is it is a, not as complicated of a system as we make it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me yeah. today. Is there anything yeah. you want to add or do you feel like we covered? Yeah, we covered a lot. Say, I yeah. think this was wonderful. Yeah. And thank you so much for yeah. joining me today on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change you. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please share.